Amen. Be seated, please. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 7 through 13. While you're turning there, I will just give a brief comment as to what we're doing. Uh, We've finished Matthew, been in that book for, um, I think, forever, Uh, and taking just a couple of weeks to do a little bit of congregational instruction uh, before jumping into Numbers, and we're going to tackle the entire book of Numbers in about 11 sermons or so. Uh, But to do a couple of Sundays of just very focused, intentional congregational instruction, uh, specifically looking kind of in light of the fact that by God's providence, sweet mercy, uh, this church has grown uh, so much. When we built this building two years ago at the beginning of COVID, uh, all of our membership really fit on this side. And you can see there's another side in the room that's still really full. So we want to make sure that we get um, kind of all of us on the same page, so to speak. This is God's Word, Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Father, you have spoken in the reading of your word. We ask that you would speak now in its preaching and that we would be equipped to hear. For Christ's sake, amen. What makes you, you? And I don't mean that in the sense of like the knowledge in your head of like, I know I'm Michael and I know I'm not you. But I mean like, what are the things that kind of make you who you are? The things that Maybe if they were taken away, you might stop being you. Those are really important questions. Like, is it, is it your intelligence and how smart you are? Or your sense of humor? Or how, how beautiful? Or maybe it's your function. Maybe it's your marriage. Or maybe it's your parenting. Maybe it's your job. What, what are the things that make you, you? And honestly, we probably never really thought about that question. Most of us don't think about that question until we hit hard times and those things start being taken away from us. Well, you lose your health, have a season of life where your brain's cloudy, you lose your sense of humor, you lose your job, you, you lose your family, you, you, whatever you lose, it's taken away from you. And what you begin to realize, one, you've made idols out of a lot of things. But you begin to find out that there are, it's a lot less than what you realize. In fact, actually, the, the vast majority of the things that you put in that list of what makes you, you, 
are things that can be taken away and it would make no difference. You'd still be yourself. However, it, it is very important that we, we work hard to make sure the right things, the, the important things, make the cut. You know, what, am I, what is my identity in? What is my personhood based in? This sermon series is, is really about answering that question, not for me or for uh, the elders of the church or for you individually, but answering that question kind of collectively. What makes Christ Ridge Christ Ridge? What makes this church not the church across the street or the church across that street or the church across the street down that way or the church that way? What, what makes us us? What makes us tick. And this series has been not about the content of our faith. Uh, We do that in Sunday school. I'll make a shameless plug for that. I'm teaching Sunday school right now, teaching through the Westminster Confession of Faith, the things that we believe. You should come. It's very good. Uh, Not that I'm biased because I'm teaching it. Yeah, I thought that joke actually went past you. I had to slow down, make sure you got it because it was, I thought, a very good one, but... This sermon series is not focused about the content of what we believe as much as the activities that we participate in as a church. What makes this church this church? What are the activities that define us? And we started it last week with the Great Commission. The Great Commission, one of those great passages that everybody knows, again, very often kind of maybe taught a little bit incorrectly or maybe with not quite the exact um, focus it's supposed to, and we looked at the verbal categories, the grammar of it. I know this is very technical, but three specific categories of verbs that create kind of a hierarchy as to what the church is supposed to be about. First and foremost, the church is supposed to be about making disciples. The way the church makes disciples is through the gathering and perfecting of the saints, the baptizing and the teaching, gathering and perfecting. With a passive participle, kind of summing it all, when you do this, how do we do this? Well, we do it always, everywhere, all of the time. Wherever the people of Christ Ridge go, that is where we are to be making disciples. Whether we have members across the globe or members in this place, constantly making disciples disciples. Put differently, this church, Christ Ridge, exists to gather and perfect the saints. We stop doing that, we stop being the church. That's it. Like that, that's it. That's the focus of what we're doing here. We have, you know, all sorts of things, a lovely Bible wall. We have all wonderful things that happen. But the gathering and the perfecting of the saints Is the beating heart of this church. That's what I laid out last week. I presented in a way that hopefully was challenging and forced at least a little bit of thought. And uh, we had a, a number of people come up to me throughout the week or even Sunday and say, well, I mean, yeah, the real challenge is implementation though, isn't it? Right, of course, I mean, gathering and perfecting, making disciples, we would agree with that. But the, the real issue is the way you do that. How, how do we at Christ Ridge gather and perfect the saints? What do our activities look like? What are the mechanisms that we do? Are, are we busy organizing protests at the courthouse for various things? Those might be very good. Is that what this church is doing at its leadership level, at its institutional focus? 
Are we creating forums or commenting on forums on public policy or civic justice? Very good things to do. Is that what the church is going to be about? Are we creating a, 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 a countercultural wave of cultural experiences and music and things of this? Or is that what the church is supposed to do? Very good things. If only the Lord had given us clear direction. Well, He has. This church is going to lean into what you're going to hear a reoccurring theme if you stick around here, a vocabulary term called the means of grace. The means of grace, what these means are is the mechanism or mechanisms that God uses to change His people. The the tools that He uses to gather and perfect the saints. They're the, the, the vehicles whereby he kind of transports his people throughout his kingdom. This term is uh, certainly scripturally rooted, but uh, drawn largely in how we emphasize it from the Westminster Confession of Faith, our, again, denominational document. The Shorter Catechism, question 88. What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. So how do we as Christians receive the benefits of what Jesus has done? Are they they mystically and magically given to us? Is God sitting up in heaven going, okay, they're Christian now, okay, they get the benefits of Jesus, and instantly kind of zapping us with the benefits of Christ's work? Or has God himself, as part of his plan of creation and plan of redemption, chosen certain mechanisms to communicate to us Christ, to communicate to us the benefits of Christ? And when I say communicate, I don't mean just say, I mean give. How do you experience Jesus How do you interact with him? How do you come to know him? How do you even have your abiding in him established and affirmed? Well, the answer to Shorter Catechism 88 is this, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefit of redemption, ours ordinances, especially word sacrament, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. God ordinarily works through word, sacraments, and prayer. The way that you could think of it is uh, an illustration that helps my brain, is if you want to interact with God and receive His power, and receive His grace, and to be transformed in your life, and how you think, and how you feel. Be remade and made differently. You want the water of life. The means of grace are the hose that carry it. When you were a kid, you play outside all afternoon. It's hot. A million degrees, you're thirsty. Nobody gets excited about the hose as much as they get excited about the water. They get to drink from the hose. But it no less makes the hose important. 
And that's what we're really talking about in this sermon series is to say every Sunday we talk about the water of life. We talk about Jesus. Amen, glory, hallelujah. We should. But we do want to, for a brief season, get us all on the same page to say how we experience him is important. Right? I mean, what a beautiful confession of sin that we've confessed. I did not write that, neither did Brandon. How beautiful. But we need to get on the same page as to what the ministry of the church looks like. And this is the means of grace. And the first big thing to kind of note that's going to frame out the rest of the sermon, again, a little bit of a different structure than normal, is that the Lord uses the means of grace to actually do something. Now, that, that, that's important. Hear how I said it. To actually do something. It, it's not just for the Christian that we interact with word or sacrament or prayer and come away with nothing having happened. That's why we read that Isaiah 55 passage that every time the person of God goes to the word, the Lord uses it to do something. Now, his ways are higher than our ways, and so sometimes it's not what we intend. Sometimes we sit down and are like, I'm looking for some encouragement. We read a passage and go, oh man, I'm convicted of sin. Sometimes we read and go, I feel badly about myself. I'm under conviction of sin, and then we find encouragement. It's not what we expect. The Lord does things. His ways are not our ways. But that God specifically uses the means of grace to do something. You're going to hear that over the next series of certain, next several sermons with word, sacrament, prayer, and fellowship as we talk about God doing something through these things. Now, the interesting one is what we confessed just uh, a little bit ago. For today, at least, how does God use the word? That was question 155 that you confessed just a little bit ago. How does God use the word? Now, they're using a bit fuller language to make the word effectual to salvation, but how does God use it for his people? And it's interesting. What, what do they say? God uses the reading of his word, but especially the preaching of his word to do something to change people, to bring them from death into life, to encourage, to build up, to sanctify, to edify, to do amazing things. The reading of his word. But particularly the preaching of it. And this is... Uh, a point that has been very important throughout Reformed church history, but maybe kind of strikes a little bit at kind of this American moment in the church that we have currently, which is uh, your private reading of the Bible is extremely important. You should do that every day. But it will never be as important or as powerful as what you're experiencing right now. Because preaching of the Word is something different where God authoritatively declares his truth to the people of God corporately. 
The second Helvetic Confession, 1562, written by Heinrich Bullinger, is written actually just as his own personal efforts to help organize his brain. The Reformation is in its early days. It's been going for 45 years or so. And as he's contemplating kind of the consequences of biblical Christianity, he writes what would eventually be adopted as the second Helvetic Confession with most of the Swiss churches adopting it. This document really is the foundation for how Reformed churches view preaching. And in it, he says this concept the preaching of the word of God is the word of God in so much as it agrees with the word of God. And I hear that again, that the preaching of the word of God is the word in so much as it agrees. I'm not, I'm not, able to, I'm not allowed to stand up here and say nonsense and say, well, that's what God said. No, actually, that's wrong. <laughs> that's not preaching. That's wrong. I am 100% under this book, governed by this book, held accountable to the content of this book, but where my words match the content of this book, you're hearing God himself speak to you. To proclaim the truth. Bullinger writes, Therefore, when the word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, not anybody gets to do it, We believe that the very Word of God is proclaimed and is received by the faithful, and that neither any other Word of God is to be invented nor is to be expected from heaven. Preaching the Word, Word in general, but preaching particularly, is a means whereby God does something in his church. That's the background. I know that is the longest introduction I've ever preached. <laughs> Don't worry, the sermon will still be short. It won't, but I'm going to pretend like it will be. That's the background that you have to have to get to where we're at in Ephesians 3 because Paul makes here a very specific point about preaching that if your ears aren't kind of paying attention to it, will just blow by. that God delights in using the word and preaching to do something. Verses 7 and 8, Paul here, letter to the Ephesian church. He loves the Ephesians, uh, active participants in his ministry, highlights what he's doing at all, right? A murderer, an accomplice to murder, a man who's been responsible for torturing Christians. He's literally, by most metrics, one of the worst people on the planet. Radically converted, transformed now to being a minister, an apostle in the very church that he was busy murdering. Boy, that's inconvenient, isn't it? And what does he say of this gospel, this, this gospel, that the truth that Jesus went to the cross, he lived, died, was raised for men and women, boys and girls, so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could live a new life, and it's all offered freely, that all you have to do is receive through faith the gift that Jesus gives. It's of this gospel that he was made a minister. This is the content of the church. We'll talk about this again other times, other places. Sunday school, you should come. This is the content of his ministry. But what's the form? 
What's the structure? He has the gospel, but what is he doing with that gospel? Well, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. It really is grace. I mean, to take a murderer like this man and to change him. Which was given to me by the working of his power. So this is God that gave this gift. It's God that gave this power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, he, I mean, in some sense, he actually, literally at this point, probably was. I mean, murderer turned apostle. Pretty amazing. And this is intriguing. Verse 8, this is the grace that was given to preach. To preach. That's the grace that's given him. That, that, that's what his calling is. That's what he is as a minister. That's what his life in the church is supposed to be about. And interestingly, this is the man who then trains really the first generation of pastors in Christian history. And what is he training them to do? Preach. We see it in his conversations with Timothy. Go preach. We see it in his conversation with Titus. This is the, con, the, the structure of what the church is supposed to be about. That gospel is proclaimed. It's spread. It's transmitted through the word, but specifically and narrowly focused on preaching. You could say it differently. Preaching is the mechanism for the gospel. Sacraments and prayer flow from and are connected to. But preaching is the beating heart of gospel proclamation. That's it. That's what the the gathering and the perfecting of the saints is the, the driving force. Obviously, it's God's power. The reading, but especially the preaching of the Word. Now, realistically, some of us immediately are going to go, well, I mean, he picked a pretty odd thing, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, God did. It was not just Paul. But out of all of the things that the church has available, preaching seems like a pretty foolish one to choose. I mean, like, look at our moment in history. We, we could make movies. That would be fun. I would hate them, but I'm not a good actor, but it would be fun. Right? We have small groups. I've been a part of them. They're wonderful. We have flocks in the evening. How great that's going to be tonight. We have prayer meeting. How great that is. We, we have so many things that we could do or we are doing, but interestingly, all in some fashion end up being subordinate to the primary mechanism, the preaching of the Word, not the preaching of the personality, not the preaching of the man, useless, right? I'm, I'm not the issue here. I am easily exchanged. If you don't believe that, we proved it in October. Unplanned sabbatical. Month in the hospital, two months convalescing at home. Guess what? Did the pulpit suffer? No, it did not. Did the church suffer? No, it did not. Maybe a little bit less efficient. I'll give you that one. But the pulpit, the gospel proclaimed in power and in truth. 
And again, you may think, well, uh, I mean, uh, what a silly choice. Well, go read the first couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians. Paul addresses that. The foolishness of of man is the wisdom of God. I'm not going to deal with that as much as I'm going to look at. Well, let's see what Paul actually says preaching does. Because he doesn't stop here by saying the grace that was given to me is to preach, but then he goes on to say, what does preaching accomplish? What does preaching do? Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And again, because of the time and space we live, our ears probably don't catch that and just blow on by. Oh, he preached to the Gentiles. Oh, great. Now, actually, you need to kind of rewind time and space a little bit, get your brain back in the time in which this is written. And remember, at this point in human history, or just prior to this point, a couple of decades prior, the only way that you could know God at all, in a salvific sense, and the only way you could be saved, is through the Jews. And they lived in a very small geographical area uh, for most of their time. I mean, they, they didn't live over in this continent at all at this point in history. If you wanted to know who God was, you not only had to go to the place where the Jews lived, but you actually had to become a Jew. A small nation in a small part of the world with great significance. We, we, we really forget how in the Old Testament, how, how small it was. How few people knew the God of grace, knew of the hope of forgiveness of sins, knew that God loves people. Such a small number. And it's interesting that Paul here goes, okay, so now God is doing a new thing in Christ. This new covenant we get to see is for all people. It's not just for Jews. It's also for Gentiles. It's not just for those that in the Old Testament were the people of God. Now it's for the church, which is really what the Old Testament was preparing us for. But this group of people's not connected to any one nation geographically. It's not connected to any one culture culturally or politically. It's not connected to one language group. It's for everybody everywhere, and it's going to go to the ends of the earth, and it's going to include everybody, and the mechanism that is going to accomplish that is preaching. It's preaching. This is the grace that was given. He gets to preach, but he gets to preach to the Gentiles, an unreached people group that are the overwhelming majority of the people alive on planet earth at that time. I mean, massive numbers change here. The Jews, this tiny little fragment of humanity, the Gentiles, that's everybody. And the amazing thing is, again, if you were thinking about it kind of strategically in the time in which Paul's writing this, you might go, well, seriously, Paul? Like, what a terrible decision. You can't think of anything better than that? But remember, what are the means of grace about? God promises to use them, to, to do something with them. And it's not Paul's power, it's God's power that's doing it. 
And so we would stop and go, well, did God do that? Did God take the gospel to the Gentiles? And then we go, well, wait a minute, I'm a Gentile. And wait a minute, I, I don't know all of these people in this room, but almost all of the people in this room are Gentiles. And in fact, actually, almost all of the people that I've gone to church with my entire life are Gentiles. In fact, now that I think about it, if I've lived in the South my whole life, I don't know that many Jews at all. Yeah, I think that's probably been successful. Call me crazy. Literally, churches like this filled all over this continent on the other side of a massive ocean from the time and space in which this was written. Yeah, I think preaching works. Yeah, I think God does it. I think he has absolutely done something through preaching. Minister to the Gentiles. It doesn't stop there. This is pretty cool. To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now, again, we what he's talking about here is this plan of redemption that was introduced in Genesis chapter 3, that God would save for himself a people, would accomplish their salvation, that God would ultimately accomplish that salvation in Jesus Christ, and God would accomplish that salvation so fully in Jesus Christ that every one of his people would be brought to live with him in the new heavens and the new earth. That all of that which has been mysteriously kind of veiled throughout human history would be brought to light through preaching. That's, again, an amazing thing to think about. That the pulpit is, is the location where God's people begin to have kind of the blinders taken away where we can see what God has been doing in history for thousands of years. What we're talking about here is, is salvation as a whole, not, and I don't mean just the little bit of conversion, the part where you're made new, where I, I got saved. I'm talking about the plan of salvation that has worked out from, from creation all the way through to re- redemption and consummation, the transformation that God does in you, this mysterious thing that God, the uncreated God, would interact with and redeem the created creature that has sinned against him. What a mystery. Now, I, I will make a side note here. There are some in the room that have spent so much time in the church that when we think of the Bible, we don't think of it as being mysterious. And when we think of the gospel, we don't think of it as being mysterious. And if you're in that category where you're like, everything's pretty obvious to me, can you just for a moment just take time out and thank the Lord for that? Because what that means is that you've been involved in the Bible enough (laughs) by God's mercy. He's given you situations that you've been taught so that you understand it and you've learned from it. But friends, there are some folks in this room that didn't come to know the Lord Jesus until they were a little bit older in life. And boy, it was a mystery then. I mean, the idea of stepping out into the unknown and trusting this God that they cannot see who is 
also Jesus, but Father's not Jesus, but both God. And then also the Spirit, three persons, one God, not three gods, not one person. But to trust Him that He is who He said He is. Yeah, that's a mystery, friends. And some of you have been Christians for so long that it, it just seems so simple and so easy and so believable. And honestly, if you grew up in the church like I did, it's so clear and what a gift. But the fact that it's clear is proof that it does what he says it does. That is making light of the mystery that you would not have known any other way. That God makes salvation clear through preaching. My favorite one is the, the last one here that he gives. This is the one that many of us honestly have probably never thought about. This is the one that has the potential to actually melt your brain. It might not, I don't know, but this is part of the mystery of what God is doing. In verse 10, to make this mystery clear, so that, verse 10, so that through the church, the church will be so transformed, the church will be so changed, the church will be so remade, that the manifold wisdom of God, now that manifold there is multifaceted, think like uh, if you have a, you know, a diamond on your ring, you can look at it in different ways and it reflects and it's all really brilliant and shiny and shows all the different bits. So that the, the brilliance, the multifaceted wisdom of God might now be made known to us, nope, to each other, nope, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I'm going to shortcut a whole lot of argumentation to kind of give you my take on that very quickly. This is the angels, and specifically the good ones. It's not the demons. That they're going to show up in chapter 6. But specifically the good angels, Michael, Gabriel, all of the other hosts of heaven, in some form or fashion have court in front of the Lord they dwell in his presence in some form or fashion, but the interesting thing is, is while they know about creation and they know about the word of God, they don't get to see it worked out until the church does it. So these angels, as wonderful as they are, are not all-knowing. They're not omniscient. They know the character of God they know the nature of his word, but they are inside creation and have to observe it the same way in some sense that we do. And so part of what preaching does, this is an amazing thing to me, is to reshape the church in such a way that we live and showcase the wisdom of God to the angels. Because they watch. They're learning about God himself by watching you and by watching me. That great theologian, Neil Peart, drummer of the Canadian band Rush, though certainly not actually meaning the lyrics correctly, I think has actually captured a good idea. All the world's indeed a stage. and We are merely players. Performers and portrayers, each another's audience outside the gilded cage. There's a sense in which we are 
the arena in which the angels get to observe the glory of God. Now, now hear that idea again. The angels who dwell in the very presence of God further learn their understanding of His wisdom, His goodness, His power, and His glory by watching you and me. By watching the church. What a weird thing to think about. (laughs) That part of what I'm actually doing on Sunday morning when I preach to you is I'm preparing you for your role in the story that God is telling and that he's showing the angels so they will marvel at his goodness and they will marvel at his wisdom and they will marvel at his grace and they will marvel at his glory. So they will be better equipped to praise him. I like that one being attached here because the first two are things that we look at preaching and go, well, that's kind of obvious, right? I mean, it's kind of obvious that preaching would win new converts and that it would expand to the ends of the earth. That kind of makes sense. We would say it's kind of obvious that preaching would be used to to make known the mysteries of God's plan. That's kind of obvious. And here, you know, Paul kind of is like, well, Let me one-up you a little bit. You're not going to be able to guess this one, friends. Part of what preaching does is it changes the church so that even the angels marvel. Well, I wasn't expecting that. Because part of what Paul is getting at, and you see this kind of all throughout the Scriptures, is that the means of grace do more than even what we understand them to do. And I, I make this point very carefully because, look, realistically, many of us are very good about saying, you should go to church, you should hear the Bible preached, it's good for you. And that is 100% true, 100% true. But the thing is, is that you cannot understand the depth of the ways that it is good for you. Because God hasn't even shown you all of those yet. I mean, you think about it, how many of you, when you walked into the, you know, the doors this morning, thought part of what I'm getting ready to do is be prepared to teach the angels about God's wisdom. Nobody was thinking that, but God was. You weren't, but God was. He was preparing you because he knows what he's doing with preaching. The means of grace do more than we understand they're able to. All right, so now real quickly, just a couple of points of application. So what, what do I do with that? I mean, what does Christ Rich do with that? Why does that matter? Well, one of the things that that matters is that we work hard as a session, the leadership of this church, to make sure that preaching is a big deal here. That it's an event that you, you come to hear the Word of God, and when you walk in through the doors here, you will engage God's Word. Now, I'm preaching the Bible, and Brandon's preaching the Bible. But it's not something to be taken lightly. I'm not always successful in this, but it is my intention every time I step into this pulpit to invade your personal space and to grab you by the ears and kind of shake you a little bit so that you have to listen to the Bible. 
because you need to hear preaching. And friends, I would encourage you, because of this, view this sermon not just as a, oh, the pastor's going to get up and give a talk. It's a speech. But to view it as an opportunity for you to hear the Lord Himself talk to you. And to take with that the seriousness and the weight of God Himself speaking to you in your seat. It's an event. It's like the defining event of your life. And again, we could kind of say this in a bit of a a ridiculous way, but if you knew Jesus was going to come to your house and sit down and have a conversation with you, when would you start cleaning the house? Yesterday, it doesn't matter when he's coming. I mean, 20 years from now, man, you'd start on those projects right now, wouldn't you? But it's interesting, this is a conversation with Jesus, no less. It's an event. One that's designed to kind of grip us and to change us. First application in that regard, I would encourage you is prepare for it. Prepare for it. I, I would love to pretend that every sermon I've ever preached in this church has been good. That was my wife laughing. I join her in that, actually. (laughs) I will always remember, though, one of my uh, professors in seminary said, uh, you know, guys, it's, it's really easy to start a fire if you bring your own kindling. It's really easy to enjoy a sermon if you bring a heart that's been well prepared. I work hard at preaching for you, but I'm gonna be honest, there are times when it's an absolute dud. I'm not blind to that fact. In fact, I know it way more than you know it because I listen to myself talk too and it's awful. But if you're prepared, if you've been all week pleading with the Lord for the sermon to be good, if you've spent all week pleading with the Lord for the sermon to have his power, if you've spent all week pleading with the Lord for you to have a tender heart, if you've been pleading with the Lord all week for you to see the glory of Jesus in the preaching, friends, that is a very low bar for me to have to step over. I'm going to be honest. None of y'all in here, but sometimes people walk in and are like, impress me. Do you know how impossible it is to preach under that burden? Impress you. (laughs) If the Bible doesn't impress you, friends, there's nothing I can do. Prepare your hearts. Pray for me. If you don't like my preaching, pray for me. Nobody wants you to pray for my preaching more than I do. Trust me. Nobody wants a good sermon more than I do. Trust me. Nobody wants the power of God in my preaching more than I do. Trust me. I know the same things are true for Brandon. Pray for us. Prepare your hearts. Read your Bible so that, you again, your heart is already soft. It makes it easier. Two, go into each sermon with the expectation that God will change you, but maybe not in that exact moment. 
Every sermon God uses, Isaiah 55, he never sends his word out and it returns void. He uses it. Now, he doesn't always use it in the way that you would expect. Think of it like eating. I, I have no recollection of what I ate yesterday. I know I did. My body kind of tells me I did. I know I did. For you, it's the same thing. You may not remember my sermon last week. That's okay. It doesn't hurt my feelings, but you ate. Be prepared. Feast on who God is. Know that He uses this to change you, to reorder your brain, and to transform you. Be prepared. But last, and I might say this just the most kind of collectively, understand and encourage the leadership as much as you can that we're sticking our flag in the sand. This is what we're going to be. We're going to be a church that preaches the Bible. That's what we do. There are a lot of things that are very good and right and proper and true that we don't do. This is what we do. When you're encouraged by that, please tell the elders that so they don't grow weary in doing good. When you pray for Brandon, you pray for me, tell us that so that we don't grow weary in doing good because together as a church, this is the hill we die on. And if that doesn't kind of resonate with you yet, please come talk to me so we can work through it together. Because realistically, as I mentioned, there are many good things for us to, be, to occupy our time with Many wonderful ones. But I have a limited amount of hours every week. Brand has a limited amount of hours every week. We keep track of them. We know exactly how many hours we work. We want those hours to be spent in so much as we can in preaching and in sacraments and in prayer together. Because that's what we believe. God blesses the outward and ordinary means. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For the reading of your word, you've spoken in that. We thank you for the preaching of your word, Ephesians chapter 3, that you use preaching to do something. And Lord, we do ask that what we see in the end of that chapter, just a, a few verses further, that you would do more than what we could even ask or imagine, far more abundantly than what we could even dream of through preaching. And we pray that for Christ Ridge that this would be a church that is transformed through the preaching of the word. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.